Welcome to the Highlands Current Podcast. I'm Chip Rowe, the editor of The Current. In each episode, our reporters will take you behind the scenes as they speak with residents of the Highlands about their interests, passions, and adventures. In this episode, Brian P.J. Cronin sits down with Gwendolyn Bounds, who you may know as the author of Little Chapel on the River, a book about the Guinan's pub that formerly existed on Garrison's Landing. They'll be talking about her recent journey to the Middle East for what is known as a Spartan race. Here's Brian. Thank you for joining us here on the Highlands Current Podcast. My guest today is Gwendolyn Bounds. She is the Vice President and Chief Content Officer for Consumer Reports. Before that, she was a reporter and editor among many other roles at the Wall Street Journal. In addition to serving on the board of directors of this very newspaper, the Highlands Current, she also serves on the board of American Public Radio's Marketplace franchise, UNC Chapel Hill's Hussman School of Journalism and Media. She's also the author of the 2005 book, Little Chapel on the River, A Pub, A Town, and the Search for What Matters Most, which is about the now-gone but never-forgotten pub Guinans that was at Garrison's Landing here in the Hudson Highlands for 50 years before closing in 2008. And yet, we are not going to talk about any of that today, except I do want to ask you some questions about Guinans at the end of the conversation. But instead, I would like to start off by asking how and why last month... You found yourself crawling through the desert in the Middle East through barbed wire. <laughs> so what were you there to do? You were not escaping from a military camp, as I understand it. I was not. Uh, and I was not even yet escaping from the snow and the ice that is outside uh, this incredible studio. We're here in Beacon. Um, thanks for that nice intro, Brian. And it always is uh, It's always a little emotional when I hear you uh, speak about Guinans, right? Mm. Like it's been so many years and I'm glad we're going to talk about it a little bit, you know, for those people who do remember. Um, so, yes, uh, I was in Abu Dhabi mm-hmm. um, in the United uh, Arab Emirates uh, in the World Championship Spartan Obstacle Race. Uh, and that was last December, as you noted. It was a 13.5-mile uh, trek. Um, you're you're an endurance racer yourself, so you'll that'll seem a small amount to you, but um, through the, some of the thickest sand I've ever been in in my life um, and some of the biggest dunes up and down the world with 30-plus obstacles that we had to face. And for people who don't know what Spartan racing mm-hmm. is, they have probably uh, heard or seen like American Ninja Warrior on television or heard about Tough Mudder, uh, but these are um, races that are both um, you're, you're, you're a foot race, right? Like you're racing like a running race, but you are also scaling obstacles that are sort of military in nature, climbing eight-foot walls, as you uh, mentioned, climbing under barbed wire and trying not to get your skin caught, which I have not always been successful doing, carrying heavy, heavy um, buckets of of rocks or sand, scaling ropes, all of these sorts of things. So uh, it is a long road to how I got there um, and part of my own story that I never thought would be part of my story. But that is that is where I found why I found myself in the Middle East. And this was not the first time you had competed in the world championships either. Is that correct? No, I had uh, made it for the very first time. I didn't even start racing until about five years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, 2018 was the first race, but I didn't start training until before that. Uh, And you and I might get into that. But this athletics is not part of who I have been up until now. So I'm actually a little even I was even nervous about doing this podcast because I was like, I still can't quite process the fact that someone wants to talk to me about something that's a physical endeavor as opposed yeah. to say writing a book or something so i i think chips uh the editor's first email to me i actually got in abu dhabi and literally i didn't email him back mm-hmm. i was like he'll just forget about it <laughs> and you emailed me and i can never 
uh, say no to another reporter. So no, I was also in the world championship in Lake Tahoe in 2019. And, um, then the world as we know, it kind of shut down mm -hmm. at the beginning of 2020. Um, and so, um, I only got one race in before that happened. Um, so yeah, this was, the, this was the second time. So what do you have to do to qualify for the world championships? It depends on the year. So this year was different because of COVID, right? Uh, usually you have to qualify. It depends on where where and how you race, right? Mm -hmm. I am not an elite racer. Those racers are generally in their 20s and 30s. There are a few in their 40s. I think I know one who is 50, but um, but they're generally people who do this competitively or more professional athletes. Um, I race competitively now, um, though I didn't start out in a competitive heat, but competitively in my age group. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's just get it out there on the table. I am 50 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, and and so to qualify, you have to place during the racing year um, in the top ten, and then get. You, there's like a it's a very complicated formula they use, but you have to place a certain a certain amount of races in the top ten. Then you have to and or get to the north um, the North American Championship and place in a certain level there, and then you will get a seed to go to the World Championship if you if you place high enough there. This year it was different because. Honestly, not a lot. Not everybody could get to race. So yeah. at the very, I mean, I qualified pretty early in 2021 because um, I was having a very good seat. I had a very good season in 2021, but they at the end, I think one because of the pandemic, and two just because this was the first time they had held the race outside of um, the U.S. Mm -hmm. the World Championship race. They just opened it up in the age group, and they're like, if you can get yourself to Abu Dhabi and into the middle of the desert, right, you can you can compete. Um, because I think they thought it wasn't fair. A lot of people had hadn't been able to race throughout the year. It was controversial. There was a lot of like, you know, how the internet is, right? And social media of people just complaining about that. I personally didn't care. I thought if you can get there and you can compete, like who cares, right? Like, you know, I, it didn't bother me, but, um, but that's generally how it is. So, um, how many races have you been, have you been able to race throughout the pandemic? So, uh, I, so, in 2020, there was one race. I got in my first race in Jacksonville, Florida, at the very beginning of the year. Um, I placed fourth. I was feeling, I was either fourth or fifth. I was feeling pretty good. And then, of course, there was no racing for the rest of 2020. Um, I did my own racing uh, around Garrison and Cold Spring. You and I can talk about how strange that must have looked to some people, including my neighbors. But in 2021, this last year, uh, I got in 14 races. Um, so I was I was everywhere from Ohio to West Virginia to Asheville to Fayetteville, um, uh, Vermont, which is a very brutal race they have in Killington, um, which is where the founder of Spartan um, started 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 Spartan race, and then ended up in Abu Dhabi. What of all of those, uh, including Abu Dhabi, is the toughest one that you felt for you? I think the hardest is Killington for sure. I mean, it, the elevation is um, it's thousands and thousands of miles of elevation. They have something called the Death March, where you're really just going straight up um, at one. Uh, at one point for like almost a mile, uh, there's a very difficult sort of water swim obstacle. And I can say for me, it was the hardest race I've ever done. Um, it was there until I got to Abu Dhabi. <laughs> that was the hardest one in a different way. So now with the obstacles, do you know beforehand what the obstacles are going to be? Yes, you generally do. I mean, they're pretty standard through most of the Spartan races, though, you know, Spartan is known for sort of throwing curveballs at you, right? So um, you generally know you're going to have a sandbag carry and a bucket carry, and you're going to go through what they call a multi-rig, which is a combination of swinging on rings um, to monkey bars um, to ropes, sort of in traversing that. You know you're going to hang upside down under a rope, something 
called the Tyrolene Traverse, where you have to uh, traverse that rope with, you know, without touching the ground to get to a bell, um, barbed crawl under barbed wire, throw a spear. Those are generally some of the standard um, the standard uh, obstacles you'll see. But like in the 2019 um, uh, World Championship, they threw a double sandbag carry at us, mm-hmm. which meant instead of like one 40-pound sandbag, you were hauling two for the women, you were hauling two. That also happened to be a year um, in 2019 where uh, they had a huge, they had a a storm right before the race. So the temperatures plummeted. They had to postpone the start of the race because they were chipping ice off the obstacles. Um, And so there was snow and ice on the ground and then the the sandbags froze. So it was just, I mean, when I think back to that trek up and down that mountain with those two sandbags, like... I saw grown men literally weeping on the side of the mountain. It a lot of people dropped out after that. My own coach, who's an elite racer, she actually got hypothermia in that race and had to be pulled out of the race um, because we had a swim where it was you know you had to go through the wet swim and then whatever you have to take with you whatever you carry and you can't like you know they can't leave it on the shore. You have to take it with you and bring it back. So dealing with that was was very difficult. Um, so occasionally they'll throw things at you that you don't know are coming, like a double sandbag carry, but generally you know. So let's talk about training, because for the races I do, you know, 50 miles, I'm training for a 62-mile and 100-mile race. You know, I can just run. Even the steepest races, I mean, if you've done the breakneck marathon here, not, nothing I encounter is going to be steeper than that. But I would imagine for what the races you're doing, Obviously, you're not just running. So for something like a sandbag carry or climbing across, you know, uh, vines or rope swings or whatever, <laughs> do you have something set up in your yard where you can just climb through the treetops? Are you running up and down the street with sandbags? I mean, how do you how do you train for an event like this? Yeah. Wow. I'm going to totally, uh, you know, I'm going to totally out myself as the crazy person now. But yes, it's sort of all of the above. Um, let me back up one step to when I first got started, because you know, again, I was, um, you know, roughly 46 years old and sort of had woken up one morning. I had never been, never done anything more than just a fun run 5k. And, um, and, you know, I, I just was sort of Googling what are the hardest things you can do. And I had done that because honestly, I'd been at a dinner party the night before and this old man had asked this young girl, this child there who was, who was the daughter of somebody he'd said, you know, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she like had this list of amazing things she wanted to be. And it was like a fascinating listening to her. And then I remember thinking later that night, I was like, oh my God, no one's ever going to ask me that question again, right? Like there's just a point in life in which you've crossed that Rubicon and you've hit midlife and, you know, you sort of have these patterns of who you are. And I think all of us at some point, if we're lucky enough to live that long, are going to sort of face that and then think, what does this mean? Are we just managing to the decline? Are we just losing all the things that used to make us us? What can we find new in our lives that will sort of bring joy and be and make us a beginner again? So I give you that context just because I'm going to answer your question about gear because I think it's important to, to that answer, which is when I first started training for, for this, I had no idea what I needed to do. I didn't have a coach. I didn't have a gym that specialized in this. I had some idea from Spartan Race of they sent workouts for the day, but I had to sort of make my own equipment. And we are lucky here because we have the terrain that we have. So we, I had mountains. I had plenty of big logs that were just down in the forest and I had boulders. And I, I was just sort of haphazardly like going up and down the hills all around where I live in Garrison, um, carrying rocks and having people give me strange looks and carrying logs on the back of my shoulder and doing the best I could to train. Uh, 
And then as I started racing and got more and more serious about it, I started upping my equipment. So now, to answer your question very specifically, I have a 16-foot rope hanging in my backyard. I have a spear throw stand that my dad helped me build with a bale of hay I replace every year where I can throw a spear. Um, I have a bucket filled with rock salt like you put in your water softener for 40 pounds. Um, I have kettlebells, sandbags, um, and things like that. So I can train specifically for the race. But I did not start out with that. And I think for anybody looking to get into something new, you just got to work with what you've got and start doing. Because if you think, what's all my gear going to be? And I need the perfect gear and the per No, you just need to get out and you just need to start doing. How much of it do you think is uh, your desire to get started was a journalistic curiosity? Because I know for me, that was part of it. I started running just because I found that by all my jobs had been physical, really like had a physical component before I started writing all the time. And then I just felt very kind of like, you know, by two in the afternoon, I felt like I was useless. So then I just started running because I hadn't did also did not come from an athletic background, had no equipment, but I had a pair of shoes and a cell phone that could track. And then it just became, well, I wonder how far I could go. And I just wonder for me, that's how I got myself in this pickle is just the same journalistic curiosity. Well, I wonder if I can do this. So do you think that's part of it? Do you think maybe just as a reporter and an editor, just being inherently curious? I think, um, first of all, that's a great story about you, right? You just sort of underscored the point I was making. You had a pair of shoes, yeah. right? Use what you've got, right, to get out and try. Because if otherwise, you just delay and delay and delay. Um, so I, I think that's an amazing um, story, Brian. So, look, I think as a journalist, we're naturally curious. And I think that curiosity led me to wake up that morning after that dinner party and just start randomly Googling, like, what are the hardest things you can do? And then mm -hmm. the Google algorithm dropped down and, and suggested I look at what are the hardest physical things you can do. And Spartan racing came up as one of them. And I was just curious what this crazy sounding thing that people would do was. And I came upon um, another writer who had written an article for Outside Magazine um, about how he had dropped out of a Spartan race because it was so hard. And I was fascinated mostly that someone would write about failing, right? We're so wired to write about our and talk about our successes. So I, I read that article and I remember at the end of it, he was talking about how he wanted to be one of those people. And that just stuck, you know, and it and I think back to that day, like how much that stuck. And that so that curiosity led me to the Googling, which led me to his article, which then it stuck in my head. And that is part of the trajectory that got me started here. So if you are if someone out there that has something that you're thinking, like, how do I jumpstart myself? Right. No matter what age you are. But I'm saying like you can be almost 50 years old and headed to the, you know, probably with fewer years in front of you than are behind you, which is what I know to be the case now. Um, and you can still do it, but you have to have that. What are you curious about? That's the very first question to ask is what, because that's where your passion is going to be. So let's talk about failure. <laughs> uh, again, I started late thirties and I, you know, quickly was in the, how much can I push myself have been over my own head many, many times. Uh, I've never dropped out of a race, but I have been timed out. Um, I, is there is there a final cutoff in the in for these races? Is there like a timed point that you have to? There, there are, but I mean, it's really like if it's getting darker, it's, yeah. you know, they have a cutoff, especially for the ultras. Like you do the much mm -hmm. longer races, they will have cutoff points for people, um, so you can't go out on your second lap. I don't think if you haven't hit a certain cutoff time, most people are going to finish one way or like they have enough time to get to get to get finished. Um, so the the rub comes if you get a DNF, which is a did not finish. Mm -hmm. Right, you drop out of the race. Uh, so failure, 
boy, it has been a huge part mm. <laughs> of this experience for me. Um, you know, and that's not, I, I say it like that. It's not easy when you have built an adult life, like you are now in the things you're comfortable in, right? Like we, 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 we're generally good at what we do. Like this is why we've chosen our professions and our careers. So to go back to square one and be like the worst at something is so humbling, um, but also like, like incredibly freeing. So when I first started doing this, when I finally did go to a, an obstacle gym, when I decided, look, I've done as much as I did my first race at City Field, and it was just an epic, like, kind of failure for me. I finished, but like, I was climbing up the rope and I fell off the rope and I landed on my back and I like had tears come to my eyes and I thought, I'm just going to like, I'm not doing this. I'm going to the parking lot and no one's ever going to know. But something made me just like keep going. And when I finished, they have this sort of marketing saying at Spartan, like they say, you'll know at the finish. And I tell you, come through the sort of last mile and I finished and I knew, like mm -hmm. I just knew at that moment that I was, this was for me and this was going to be a part of, of who I, who I am. So, but there was a lot of failure that came with that in the gym, being one of the oldest people training with people in their twenties and thirties, having to sort of learn how to carry my weight across rings and carry my weight across monkey bars. Cause all the carrying heavy things that I did in the forest, it's very different from grip strength, which a lot of women struggle with. I am not, I am not a very big person, right? Like I'm very tall, but I'm very thin. Um, and, and, you know, so I had to really learn how to do that and just fall over and over again in that gym and be humbled over and over again. My biggest failure, and unlike you, I do have a DNF, I did not finish in my in my past. And quite honestly, it's the best thing that ever happened to me with racing was in New Jersey, Mountain Creek, which many people will know from the skiing um, uh, uh, right across the, across the river here. And it was my first um, uh, beast race, so the first 13-mile race I'd ever tried, and this was in 2019, and it was cold. And I'd never raced in sort of cold before, and I didn't have the right gear. I didn't have the right, like, preparation. And there's a woman who has since—she grew up here. Her name is Callie Schweikart. She, um, is, 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 she is an elite racer. She lives in Colorado now. Um, but I remember seeing Callie at this race and Callie had on these special gloves that are called bleg mitts, which are like neoprene gloves that fit over your hands, but which you can remove to like do the obstacles. And I saw this and I was like, oh my God, I'm in so much trouble. And I started off the race and I was just having, but I was having an incredible time. Like I thought like I had tried all these, there were new obstacles I'd never seen. I was like, I was cranking along. I felt great. And then I got to the dunk, what they call the dunk wall. And the dunk wall is where you have to go um, basically submerge yourself in water. And in this case, it was very cold. The temperatures were in the sort of mid forties at that point, submerge under cold water, under a kind of inflatable wall or a wooden wall, depending on the race. And then you come out of that and again, you're now completely soaked from head to toe. And then you climb up a slip wall, which is you run up this wall, grab a rope and climb yourself up, pull yourself up and over. And then you keep going. I hit that cold water and it just like I could feel feel like everything shifted in my body. And then after that, we had a long, slow climb. So my heart rate couldn't get up. The sun went under. The wind started blowing by mile eight, I was in a place like where my, I, I couldn't, my legs had cramped so badly. My, I finally took off my wet shirt. My arms were sort of purple. Um, I got to the bucket carry and my teeth, I finished the bucket carry. I remember kind of almost being blinded by how cold I was. A volunteer took a look at me at the race, took off his jacket, took off his, like put me inside the jacket with him and held me because my teeth were chattering in his ear so hard. And he said, do you want me to 
get an ATV for you? And I said, no, I'm going to finish. Started down the hill. I started to, um, I started to like lose my eyesight. Like I couldn't see. And I was like, I have to call it. And I crawled back up the hill. He called an ATV and they put me in that ATV and hurtled me down to the medic tent. One of the worst, most like humbling, humiliating rides of my life. And, uh, I could have gone either way, could have never raced again. But by the next morning, I woke up. I signed up for another beast in Ohio. I got myself the two coaches I have now, one who is an Olympic runner and the other who is an elite obstacle racer. And I started reading everything I could read about gear. Mm. <laughs> so um, I I don't think if I hadn't had that, I would sort of have that memory that I have that of that failure, which then drove me to keep going and to sort of find incremental improvement and in ways I could could learn from it. So I don't think failure is something to avoid. I think it's something to embrace. I do. Yeah, I think in this sport, you definitely have to embrace it. I should point out, well, while I haven't DNF'd uh, intentionally, uh, uh, in ultras, you not only have a, a ultra racing, I don't know if, if it's like this in Spartan as well, you not only have a, a final cutoff, but there are timed checkpoints along the way. And that's what gets me because you can't just like slack off in the middle and then make up the time at the end. You've got to, especially in some of them, like you were talking about, they want you off the course before dark. Uh, some of them, if they're on, if you're on national parkland, state parkland, that you have to be off by dark. And some of those, those cutoffs could be pretty tight. The first 50 mile race, the first time I ran the JFK 50 in, uh, uh, in Maryland, I got timed out at mile 45. Um, yeah. Uh, and again, it's, it's painful. <laughs> yeah. It's, and to speak to equipment, I'm at the, that's the, in terms of participants, that's the largest ultra in the country. Cause about a thousand people do that. And, and it's my first 50 mile and everyone's lined up and everybody has one of those running vests on. And, and it kind of looked like a, if you've never seen it, it looks like a fishing tackle vest. So it has a little bit, a little compartment in the back where you can put stuff. And mostly it's like, you've got like, like water bottles attached to the front and it's easy to get stuff so you can run. I had a backpack and I'm looking around and realizing I'm the only one there with a backpack. And I'm going, I wonder what everybody else here knows that I don't. And thinking, well, I guess I'll find out. I'll find out the hard <laughs> way. Uh, yeah, the first time I did the breakneck marathon, I finished, but I came literally in last because I got lost. Uh, the one part of the course that I wasn't familiar with. I came back the next year, did it again, and came in second to last. I did uh, Orcas Island 50K in the Pacific Northwest, uh, despite the fact that I was getting over the flu. Because again, you travel to these races, right? And you're like, well, I, you know, I got a hotel. I'm flying across the country. I want to see this part of the country I've never have. I have the flu, but you know what? You know, screw it. I'm going to do. And there's a, there's a climb that goes on. That, it's at like mile 36. They call this was a 50K. So it's there 31 miles. So it wasn't, uh, it was probably around 27 miles. Um, and it's like Mount Beacon, but it's just, there's no switchbacks and it's just mud and it just goes up for two miles. And I passed out. Yeah. And like the sweepers, what they call it, the people who come up and, and I kind of woke up, I was like, no, I can do it. And they're, I just remember the three of them looking down at me and they're like, no, 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 no. We're going to, we're going to walk you back down. And, uh, so yeah, I think learning to embrace failure is, I think a really important part of endurance, but I have found, I don't know if you agree with this in terms of life in general, it's been one of the most helpful things that I've gotten out of the race in terms of what it's helped me deal with in my own life. 100%. I mean, look, you just told me that story with such passion, right? That's mm -hmm. a story of challenge, like, and, and, you know, we are all challenged in different ways through our own lives. And in this last couple of years, we've been challenged in ways we had never even thought we would be as a, as a society. Um, but it's, it's what you do after that, right? You know, we can't, 
always, um, we can't change what's going to happen to us. We can only change how we react, we react to it. Right. So you, you know, you kept go. you found another race, you came back, like what you have to sort of take, what are you going to do with what happens to you after that? And after that New Jersey race where I, you know, had that humiliating ride down to the, to the medic tent and that ATV, you know, I remember, um, calling, uh, emailing Callie Schweikart, the, the woman from Garrison I mentioned, who's elite. And, and I don't know what I thought she, but she, she would sent me the most gracious reply back about not only how this happens to elite racers too, which it does happen. Um, but also just helpful gear, right? She got me, she knew what to do, which was to sort of put me back on track, um, to, to, to have a goal and to have tools to get back on track. Uh, and you know, my, goal became, I'm going to come back to that New Jersey course. Like I had a, I had a score to settle with it. And last year, um, two years later, I came back, uh, and I not only finished and had one of the best races I've ever had there in the beast, but I hit the podium and got the bronze medal in my age group for that. And, you know, it took two years for me to get there. And so many like obstacles, like I, I finished obstacles in that race. I had never once completed in a race before, but that's because I had that motivation from knowing like I needed to come back and mm -hmm. own that course. And so, you know, um, I agree with you that it's transfers into, into life, life skills. Um, and most of us, we choose not to put ourselves in hard situations, right? Like we live in a world and a culture now where, you know, we can order in food, we can get most of our needs are met, our basic needs, but humans weren't, we weren't, we didn't start out like that, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we started out having to move and to hunt for our own food and our bodies moved in certain ways. And, you know, running ultras is, is akin to like having to have found food back and mm -hmm. forth for food back in the day. And all the movements inherent in obstacle racing are, again, we're wired to do that. Look at how children play in a playground and what they do and bend and squat and move and swing. And the more we can continue to do those things as we get older, we'll be able to just live our lives better. We'll be able to pick up the water softener salt and put it in. And we'll be able to take off a sock without having to sit down, right? We'll be able to shovel our own walk. So um, I, I think, you know, tracing a failure to continuing to keep doing things um, is a strong thread in all of that. So what does it feel like when you come came back to that race and finished? I, I can tell I was so nervous at the start line. Mm -hmm. Like I, you know how your stomach is before any kind oh, of a yeah. race. And no trust me, nobody wants to hear about that on a, on a <laughs> podcast. But um I was really nervous. Um and I think so nervous in the beginning of the race that I was purposely slowing myself down because I was so terrified of hitting that water again. But um I had a plan where I had a dry bag and I took off like my, it wasn't as cold, but I was traumatized. So I took off like my dry vest, my, my, I'm sorry, my um, hydration pack, mm -hmm. my shirt. I put everything in a dry bag and I carried that under the wall, like completely just in my sports bra. And then I got back and put it all in. So I had learned, you know, enough, like I was not letting that happen to me again. I kept my clothes dry and that was very helpful. Um, but I was so nervous that to your question, I was holding myself back and then I got to this one obstacle that I had never been able to do. Not in any, I mean, I've done to date 34 Spartan races. And at this point, I think it was, this was like number 32. There's an obstacle called the box, the eight foot box. It's a, it is a box that is eight feet tall, mm -hmm. as the description would be. Very slick material siding and a rounded lip at the top. So there's nothing really to grab. They have one rope that hangs down and you have to get yourself up you're on against the box and you're pulling yourself up with the rope you can't really use your feet on the wall because you'll turn upside down like it's this whole body strength maneuver to then get yourself up and over that box 
I had never been able to do it until the New Jersey race. And I got it in the New Jersey race. I had been working on my pull-ups. I'd been doing 45 pull-ups a day in my garage Mm -hmm. trying to get ready. And when I did that, something just snapped inside of me, Brian. And I took off like a shot. I am not a fast runner. I was passing people like all the way down into the finish line because I was like, now I own this. Like this mountain is my mountain now. And um, it was, uh, I didn't have anybody with me that day. So the, the, I was kind of by myself celebrating this moment, but that was fine. And it was, uh, you know, you, I can look at the picture now and see like, wow, you know, I kind of felt like I belonged for one of the first time with all these athletes because I usually feel like an imposter because I started so late. So it was, it was pretty meaningful. Yeah. No, I always feel, sometimes I feel like at the starting line, people are, are turning around and looking at me like, what's he doing? What's here? he doing there? But the good thing about, I love about ultras is that really, you can have, and I'm sure some, and Spartan is like, we, we have, we have a, 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 an image of our head of what a successful marathon runner looks like. We've seen them. They're all very tall. They're all very thin, et cetera, et cetera. But with uh, endurance racing and ultras, you can really have success no matter your age, gender, and body type. You know, you don't have to fit that profile. And uh, Hal Kerner, who's a famous ultra runner who also puts on races in Oregon where he lives, he's written in one of his books about, he says, it still happens to me. People are doing, they're coming to pick up their packets the day before the race. And there's always one or two people. I look at them and I go, I can't, what is that person doing here? And he says, and the next day there I am at the finish line, putting a medal around their neck. Totally. Like anyone can really, if, if you want have the drive, you can really have a lot of success and enjoyment at this race, even if you don't consider yourself an athlete. The first time I, I got timed out at JFK 50, uh, as the person was driving me back, he said, well, don't feel bad because the, the woman who won today, she got timed out at mile 13 the first time she ran this race. But in terms of what it means, uh, I had the same experience where I was like, well, you know, I had done other 50 mile races, but I felt like I got to go back there. Right. So, um, 2019, I went back and I just say, you know, and I, everything I said, you know, don't do too much. Don't try to run your best 50 mile race. Just have a good time and finish. So you'll know that you've done that. You've finished this and you get to the last mile and it's dark and it starts to rain. And now you're back the first, it's an interesting course because the first mile you're going out of town to the Appalachian trail. The next 16 miles are a trail run. You're on the Appalachian trails. You're going through the mountains. Then you've got 26 flat dirt miles on the CNO canal towpath. And then the last eight miles, you're back on pavement going through a town. And if you finish at a high school, um, so it's the last mile and it's dark and it's starting to pour. And it's like, you know, I have, you know, an hour to feel like, okay, as long as I don't like lay down and die, I'm going to finish. And there's a road crossing and there's a, a police officer in the middle of the road stopping traffic. And, you know, they teach us in ultras to always say thank you to all the volunteers, not only because it's a nice, nice thing to do, but that sense of gratitude helps your, your own mental strength. It puts you in a place where you realize as hard as it is it's kind of a miracle that you're even there getting to do it. The fact that you've gotten through your training and how lucky you are that you get to have this experience. And so he's holding up traffic and he's like, you know, telling me to motion across and I I pass through and I go, thank you, sir. And I I get past him and then he yells out, sir, like the way a cop would when you're about to get arrested. And and I turn around like, and he goes, congratulations, you're about to finish the JFK 50. And I finished that last mile with just like tears I mean, it was one of the greatest like moments of my life. And, you know, and again, because I was trying to take it really easy, you know, again, I probably finished in like the bottom 2%, but there's something about when you come back to a place, a very specific place where you've had failure. And then what you learn from that to come back and have some success is I just, again, I think it's, it's uh, uh, something that this sport teaches you that I don't know many other things can. Yeah. And you, you know, you said a couple of things, um, I just think it's important for you and I to double down on for anybody listening to this. I mean, first of all, you talked about the fact in endurance 
efforts that anybody of any body type mm-hmm. can do. And it is true, right? Yeah. I see the same thing in Spartan racing and, and you, I sort of like be like, Oh my gosh, like, and then you're, and they're finishing. Right. Yeah. And, um, because if you train enough in sort of that, what they call that zone two base training, right? right. Where it's just, just above the easy zone, but it's building your aerobic base and your endurance. Like, anybody can do that. And you don't have to, you're saying 50 miles, like you're at a very different level than most people. But like, all you have to do is start with one mile, two miles, three miles. Like, and the next thing, like I had never run again more than a five. And then if you had told me I was going to be running half marathon, like I would have never believed you, but you you can scale up pretty quickly. You just have to sort of, you know, start at the easy. You're not going to start at 50 miles. You're going to start at a couple of miles. So I agree with you that anybody with any body type can do it. And I think one of the other gifts that you made me think about when you were describing that notion of sort of um, and the the very visual descriptor you gave of some of the terrain and the places you've been is one of the gifts of, an, of an endurance efforts of this nature is it allows you to forget everything else. Mm. Right. You can I can I cannot think about any problems I have at work or anything else happening in my life. Right. When I am in the middle of an effort like that, because all it is all consuming. Right. And that is a gift, because how many times can we shut our brains down to all of the things, our monkey brains, Mm. right, that are just pinging from thing to thing. You are just so focused on the next step, the next obstacle, the next clip. Right. You just or whatever. If you're in a pain cave. Right. Right. Whatever that might be, my hydration, this and that. And that. That in this world of, again, where our brains is particularly with with social media are sort of pinging everywhere, that is that is a gift in itself. So um, I, I agree with you about the tears. I've had plenty of tears, including in that New Jersey race where I just kind of went and crawled under a tent and somebody had a puppy and I had put my sunglasses on because I was crying because I just finished and saw how I placed. And I just stroked somebody else's dog for a while, right? And just, um, but, but I, I'll never forget that moment. So um, I think those are things a lot of people can identify with. Let's talk about uh, Guinans. So for, I know a lot of people have moved to the area in the past 10 years, and so they probably have may not even heard of it. Now, I know it's very difficult to sum up a place like that, uh, since, you know, your, your whole book in 2005 is about attempting to sum up a place like that. So for those who are maybe new to the area, have not heard of it, how would you, as impossible as it is to sum it up, uh, explain what Guinans was and why it was so important to the community? <laughs> you hear the pause, right? Yeah, because it is hard. so hard. And then I, you know, um, for anybody who spent a lot of time there, we all have very strong feelings about it. It was, well, let's, def- let's just start with the ba- like the practical, what it was for people who don't know. It was a, um, country store with a little Irish pub and stuck on the back of it, like literally kind of tacked into the back, um, that was owned by a family named the Guinans. Um, Jim Guinan was the patriarch. He and his wife, Peg and their four children um, lived both there. It is the place where Dolly's, the restaurant, is now down on Garrison's Landing. Um, and he operated the for, for for many decades. They operated this country store in this tiny little pub in the back that was a place where. You know, back in the day when reading physical papers was still a big thing, um, they would line up the papers on the counters and on the Sundays and people would come in to get their newspapers. Kids would come in to get their candy. People would come in the back to get a cold beer. They would make sandwiches. It was like a home away from home that many people didn't have, including cadets who would come across the river and often leave their uniforms sometimes in Jim Guinan's living room so they could go into the city, right, in their sort of civilian clothes and come back and change. 
Uh, I stumbled upon it after the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001 had shut down my New York City apartment um, because a piece of the Trade Center went. I live next to the World Trade Center towers and a piece of the Trade Center went through um, my building uh, um, that morning. And uh, so I was staying with some friends up in Cold Spring. One thing led to another. My friend said, before you go back to New York City, come down to Guinan's and, you know, um, have this beer. And I was like, I'm too busy. I've got to get back to the city. She said, trust me, just one beer, which became a couple of beers, as often would happen at Guinan's. Um, and then an afternoon, and then I moved to Garrison. Um, uh, I can't remember how many days it was, but like a week or two later and rented a house. So I became very close. And like many people, that place became a home away from home for me. What do we lose as a community when a place like that closes? I think back in... Um, I wasn't there at the time, but I remember John Guinan, who has since passed away. This is Kelly's father, um, and he was Jim's son, saying, you know, that on September 11th, 2001, that when the towers, when the attacks happened, you mm -hmm. know, both here and obviously in other places in the United States, that that's where people came. They just, they all knew to come there to find each other and to be together. Um, and I don't know you know, we lose that, right? We lose these places where we, and it doesn't mean that there aren't churches and there aren't, um, there aren't other, you know, places where people might go to con but this was just, it was like a magnet, right? Mm -hmm. And it was where everybody knew they could go and find out information. It was like better than Google in some ways, right? Yeah. You know, you could find out what was happening, not only to the people around you, but everybody there had a, tip on something. I remember the first time I got poison ivy, I went down and just asked people in the bar what to do. Like, I didn't know what, I'd never gotten poison ivy up here and I had all a, mi a million home remedies in two seconds. But we lose that connection of sort of being shoulder to shoulder with people. Um, and, you know, I don't know what would have happened in the pandemic, right? That mm -hmm. would have been a very strange time to be there. But we've certainly, and I'm not, there probably are other places like that, but it was really unique. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was really special. And even people who came from around the country and visited there, they there was something magic in those walls. And we do, we need to spend more time as much as we can. And I say this again, aside from the pandemic, in each other's presence, looking each other in the eye, not sort of being distracted on our phones, having dinner where our gadgets aren't there beside mm -hmm. us, um, walking away from that technology. That to me is what we're, we're missing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always say to tie it back to running when people ask why I go on these long runs and I always go, well, that's two hours. I'm not on my phone. Yeah, uh, there was a, you know, you say that. So when I was in Abu Dhabi, like I've never taken my phone on a, I, I would never, first of all, I'm going under dunking in water, right, and, right. but I just wouldn't take my phone. I'm running through the desert with a, and I'm next to a guy from Barcelona and we're, you know, making conversation as best we can. And, um, all of a sudden we look for, and there's an iPhone sticking up out of the sand. Mm -hmm. And we're both just like, are we hallucinating? Yeah, yeah. We pick up the phone, we'll figure we'll give it to one of the sort of, the, there's, there were police cars and ambulances all along, like to pick up people who weren't doing well or who had heat stroke. Cause it was unlike New Jersey. It was very hot, very, very hot in Abu Dhabi. Mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden you see this guy come running back down the mountain with this <laughs> panic look. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what that is, right? Yeah. And I'm like, home the phone. He's like, oh my gosh, oh yeah. my gosh. And, and I, I get it. Like he wanted his phone because this was epic. I mean, you're seeing dunes that are like things you would see in a Star Wars film, right? right? And he wants the pictures. On the other hand, I don't know. I can't imagine having my phone and not just because my the imprint and my mental, the mental Polaroids I've got mm -hmm. from that, that day and what I saw are 
better than any, like, you know, and they take professional race photos of yeah, you yeah. while you're out there. So anyway, I just, you mentioned that and I just was like so struck by like, God, he brought his phone. That was so, that's so strange to me. Yeah. I always find that's also when I get most of my writing done is when I'm running. Cause again, cause I can't be distracted by anything. Yeah. You know, you mean you're writing in your head, I'm writing in my head. Yep, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Cause I can think about like, uh, I'll transcribe an interview and then go for a run and then I'll think, all right, I have all the information I need. What's the story now? Like, what's right. What's the beginning? What's the middle? What's the end? And again, because I'm not, there's nothing else to distract me. It's me and just like my body moving through space and there's nothing else. You have processing time. Exactly. Like when do we have processing time anymore? Because if we have any downtime, again, we pick up the thing, we check right. Instagram, we check Facebook, we check our email. Maybe there's that we're going to get that dopamine hit from yeah, some, yeah, yeah. right? But when you are running, you are pro you have time to process. I totally agree, Brian. It's a mm -hmm. good point. So the last question, uh, what's next for your racing career? <laughs> I've been asking myself that a lot, um, you know, particularly having gone to Abu Dhabi and I, last year I had a goal. My goal was I wanted to hit the podium. Um, when I say the podium, the podium is a top three finish. Right. So first, second, or third place. I wanted to uh, hit the podium in every distance. So at least once, which I was able to do. Um, and I, I had a very, I even got a gold medal once. It was the first time I have ever felt something called the state of flow. Do you know about the state of yeah. flow, right? It's Tell like, us about what that is. It's, it, you know, a lot of people will describe it in different ways, but it's really when you're in the zone, right? Mm. It's when your mind and your body sort of become one and are you are so locked in that almost nothing can interrupt that. And I, it happened to me in Ohio I mean, the first time I ever felt really felt flow, I mean, I felt it in writing before, but in anything physical was in Ohio. I had run a, a, a longer race, a 13 plus mile race the day before. And I went back the next day to do a, a shorter sprint race just for fun. I didn't think, I didn't even think I'd do, I figured I would be so tired. I wouldn't even do, do well. I'd gotten second place the day before. And the, the minute I crossed the starting line, something snapped and I was running so fast. And all of a sudden my body just kicked into this, you couldn't have separated my mind from my body. I was, I was like flowing over these obstacles. Like I knew that was my race to lose. I've never been in that position in my life where I thought I am the person to beat mm -hmm. and I could see it. And I, and it just, it clicked and it was, um, you know, it took 50 years to feel that, but I tell you it was worth it. Right. Cause mm -hmm. I, that's, you want to talk about something you chase, like ch you chase being in, in, in that state of flow. So, um, so at any rate, just to, you know, I, I think I ran 14 races in 2021 and I was on the podium, I think nine times. So I got, I hit my goal last year. My goal's different this year. Um, I, I want to have better, I want to take a step back and I want to have better obstacle completion. Like I want to become so good at the obstacles that it's really, I'm really not going to fail them except in, in, in unique situations. And the reason I want to do this is because, you know, there is, there's a definitely some, there's cheating that happens in these races. And so when you fail an obstacle, you have to do 30 of something called a burpee. Yeah. And if no one has ever knows what a burpee is, first of all, Google it. <laughs> it's one of the most physically demanding like acts you can do on your body where you kind of, you squat down and then you, you jump your legs back and you go into a push up with your chest on the ground, jump your legs back up, then jump straight up in the air, hands over the head. Do that once and then do it 30 times. Right. So after, and then do it in the middle of a race when you're exhausted and you're muddy and you've got your flesh cut by barbed wire, what have you. So, but a lot of people, they don't, it's very hard to police that. And sometimes they have cameras and sometimes they don't. And it's just a thing. People cut corners and they, and I just, 
I can't do that. Like, I'm just not, like, it's not, I'm not going to do it. So the only way to kind of cut that gap for me, I think, is just to become so good at the obstacles that it won't matter. So I have to take a step back. I'm going to start doing some, in addition to the competitive races, I'm going to do some of what they call open races where it's not as competitive. So I can just go back on the obstacles over and over again um, and and compete on them. And I am also going to try and make all five, if I can, of the national series races this year to see if I can, where I really would place mm-hmm. nationally in my, in my age group, if I, cause they have five races that are specifically called national series races, um, and five different venues. And this year it's, um, uh, it's Jacksonville, Florida, Asheville, North Carolina, Utah, and then Big Bear and San Luis Obispo in California. I'm going to do what I can, pandemic willing, to see how I can do. So those are my two goals. How can I do those five races and then taking a step back to just become better at the obstacles? When is the first race? Jacksonville. Yeah. Um, And I did sign up for that. Uh, I'm going, it's the end of February. Uh, So I'm going to, I mean, again, like everything is with the caveat of who knows what this virus will throw, but I'm signed up to do that. And, um, uh, I, you know, hopefully everything from Abu Dhabi is healing. I fell off an obstacle mm-hmm. in the middle of the race in Abu Dhabi, um, called Olympus, which you're on this very slick wall holding chains or grips and kind of moving horizontally across the wall. And somebody before me must've had something slippery on their hands. I grabbed the chains and I was up on the wall in a crouch and the chain just slipped through my hands. It's never happened before. And I just landed hard on my coccyx and, um, uh, my doctor is almost certain I have a hairline fracture there, but uh, I was mostly terrified that I was only on mile um, five at that point. I was like, how am I going to finish? Like, am I going to, fi- I've flown 7,000 miles, you know, to get here and I'm not going to be able to finish. But um, now that I'm a prepared person, I had Tylenol in my pocket, which I took and you know how, ad- what adrenaline, adrenaline is your friend. So I got through it. Um, but that was a, that was a, I, I'm heal- still healing from that race, to be honest, both from my coccyx bone and my feet, my feet were pretty torn up. The sand was, even though I had gaiters on, the sand was so thick. It was like filling all of our shoes. People were taking off their shoes, Brian, and racing in their stocking feet, even in the hot sand, because it was so much better than having their sands filled, their shoes filled with sand. And I continually had to stop and dump the sand out and stop. So, you know, I lost probably 15 just dealing with my shoes. My, I, if I go back to Abu Dhabi, if they have another race, they're like, I'm going to sew my gaiters to my shoes to solve that problem. Um, but my toes were so black and blistered at the end of the race. Like I couldn't wear shoe, closed-toed shoes home on the plane. I had to wear sand like it was that. So the, all that's healing. And then I'm going to go to Jacksonville at the end of February. Great. Well, best of luck of that. And Wendy, thank you so much for being our first guest in the studio here for the Highlands Current Podcast. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great talking to you, Brian, and uh, good luck with your ultra racing. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Highlands Current Podcast. This episode was produced by Zach Rogers and recorded and edited by Johnny Taylor of Beacon AV Lab. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, leave us a review on your listening app of choice. And consider becoming a member of The Current. The paper and website and this podcast are offered free to the community, paid for with support from our readers and listeners. To join for as little as $24 annually, visit highlandscurrent.org join. That's highlandscurrent.org join. Or catch up anytime on the latest news at highlandscurrent.org or pick up a copy of the print paper every Friday. Thanks again. I'm Chip Rowe, editor of The Current, and we'll see you next time.